Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you talking with us today about your book. I would love to hear a little bit about what led you to say, I need to write this book and to put the years of research into it. What was the kind of moment for you? I suppose there was both a personal and a professional moment. I start the book with my personal moment, which is as a mum getting up one morning, watching the student strike for climate and having a real sense that those young people were making a very direct appeal to my generation and really to me to do something. And a realisation too is that although I'm not a politician or a CEO, most of the people, most of the adult generation of those children have a role to play and have some power within their professional lives to be able to contribute it to the climate cause. So I had really felt there was that personal moment, which was about doing the right thing by my kids and their generation, about taking climate change seriously and bringing it into the centre of my life. But the thing I don't write about so much about in the book, but it was really important to me professionally, was the loss of the last federal election. And so regardless of whether you vote Labor or Liberal, I realised at that moment that we needed more precise ways to understand how people felt about climate change because we've just been seeing the community continue to be more alarmed, more concerned about climate generally, but not necessarily voting with that in mind. And so there's a real disconnect between what people say matters to them and what they want government to do and how they vote. So I realised I needed more precise tools as a researcher to understand what drives people's action around climate change. But also I realised we needed those tools very quickly. I needed to get my mind around those tools very quickly because the scientists say we really only have maybe between one to three federal election cycles and the federal level of government is so critically important for climate action. We only have a couple of election cycles to really do what we need to do to get all those policy settings and to get that government action in place. So it was that that was much more of a professional moment and the combination of those two that okay i've got to find a better way to understand why people feel about climate change to that very personal moment which is how can i use my professional standing my professional skills and how can i reorient my life to make climate change not just important but essential to what i do and rebecca can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your professional life yeah oh Of course, this brought about, previously for about 15 years, I'd been a social and market researcher. I'd been a director at the global research company Ipsos. I'd run research in different kinds of smaller agencies. And that had existed in parallel with a kind of writing and broadcasting career. That The overarching theme was people's attitudes, community attitudes, particularly Australians. And I'd researched everything from attitudes to flip-flops to, I mean, I actually did it. I did a focus group on how people feel about their flip-flops 
in which I had to ask the eternal question, if your flip-flop was a friend, what would you do with it on a Friday night? You know, I mean, and all social market researchers know what it's like to do. Tricks work for work. FMCG companies. I've worked for lots of, you know, at Ipsos, I did lots and lots of, you know, very broad-ranging social research, but also some straightforward market research. And climate change and environment had been in that mix. But generally it was about, you know, what do Australians think? What do they feel? What might they do? And then since writing the climate book and a couple of years really dedicated to research on communication, so message testing, primarily for organisations that are seeking either to shift the government policy agenda or understand people's attitudes and shift them in order to influence the government policy agenda. So a lot of comms and message testing. Then with my this personal and professional shift to climate, that is now what I do. So I do a lot of work with organisations seeking to understand people's attitudes on climate change, particular audiences' attitudes on climate change, and how to better communicate with them. So within two years, my professional career has taken a really sharp turn in that direction. This is such an interesting framing that you made at the beginning about your personal connection as an adult in response to the teens striking. And in the book, you talk about how your sense is that young women are the most successful groups in changing people's minds. But I think it's really interesting, the idea that as an adult, you have power, some power in your domain that you might be able to point in the direction of making a difference. That's absolutely right. And I think one of the things... I realise one of the great impediments to me becoming an environmental activist prior to this, and that's what I see myself as. I see myself as an environmental advocate, as well as trying to understand how people feel about climate and the environment. One of the biggest impediments to that was self-identity. I didn't see myself. I looked at environmental activists and thought, that's not like me. I'm not like that. (laughs) I like to wear high heels. And as much as I like to hike, like, I'm not that kind of person who'd be yeah. an environmental activist. And I thought that to be an environmental activist, you had to go to a lot of protests and you had to chain yourself to trees and you do all those other kinds of things. It's really silly when I think about it. But interestingly, the research shows, and particularly a big piece of research that I'm working on at the moment, was a longitudinal study of Australian attitudes to climate change called Climate Compass. When we asked people what the barriers were to them being more active on the environment and climate change, One of them for some of the groups that we need to move is I'm not that kind of person. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Self-identity is really important. So when people say to me, I want to do more on climate change, what do I need to do? One of the things I say to them is, what are you already doing? I don't want you to think that making a contribution to climate change means changing the entire way you live or going to a whole lot of more meetings or doing what we normally associate as advocacy. I don't discourage that. If a big part of your coming to the climate change issue is you want to join Greenpeace, you want to join Extinction Rebellion, I don't have a problem with that at all. But I'm saying for most people, they want to find a way to make a contribution which isn't a total revolution of their life. So I say to them, what clubs do you already belong to? What professional networks do you already belong to? What do you do in your job? How can you bring climate change into your job as a teacher, as an accountant, as a small business person? It doesn't matter really what you... One of the 
one of the horrible things about climate change is that it has the potential to affect every aspect of our life. But one of the good things is you don't have to work too hard to work out how to bring climate change into your professional and personal life and your networks where you already have capital, where you already have power, where you already have trusted relationships. And so the key is not how to necessarily hook you up with conventional climate activism. The key is how do you bring climate change as an issue into your life? And I think that's really helpful because for most people, if action on climate change means a whole lot of more meetings at night, (laughs) especially if you've got caring responsibilities or full on job, if that's what it means, then we're in trouble. I think it does mean people thinking about climate more when they vote and holding their elected representatives to account much more. But beyond that, beyond those moments in election cycle where you have an opportunity to send a message to politicians about what matters to us, the rest of the time we're just living our lives. So how can we make climate change connect with that? One of the things I was interested in reading your book and I'm interested in learning more about is how does what Australians believe differ from elsewhere? My kind of connection to that is I've been living overseas and I've come back and what's really apparent is not only our attitudes have changed, so in fact we've got more kind of vocal denialism, but also that's just not necessarily the way the rest of the world is thinking about it. And what seems to be tied to that is in Australia more than I've seen in other jurisdictions, there seems to be a sense that this is your problem as an individual to fix. Mm. So the kind of the work that we are asking individuals to do is often quite onerous and tedious and complex. Whereas other countries are having conversations about how do we make it easy for people to comply with by, for example, changing policy rather than pushing people to change their individual actions. Do you have a sense of that when people get involved in feisty conversations or people are pushing back, how much of it seems to be because people think that we're asking them to make deep personal sacrifices? A lot in that question, I want to deal with it in two parts. The first is to what extent is Australia unique and the Australian community unique in terms of their attitudes to climate change. And I think at a broad level, we aren't too much outliers. So I'm, like I said, I'm working on this climate change segmentation called Climate Compass, which segments the Australian community into different groups in terms of how they feel about climate change. And that's been done in a lot of other countries and a lot of Europe, America, India, around the world. And it continues to show that broadly, we're in line with, for example, with America, we're actually quite similar to America. At least half of the population are somewhere between concerned and alarmed on climate change. The percentage of people who are hardcore deniers in the communities about in Australia is about 9%. In America, it's slightly less. So you still have people who are hardcore deniers, a minority in the community. The larger question is that a lot of people who are in that deny mindset, some of them happen to be in parliament, some of them happen to own newspapers, and some of them happen to have columns in newspapers and be on the radio. So what there is an amplification effect of denialism in Australia yeah. and in America that probably doesn't exist elsewhere, and it doesn't. When I talk to activists in the book from around the world, they're like, how is climate denialism something that you think you need to give any balance or, you know, give any air to on your national broadcaster. It's just an outright lie, what's happening here. So there is that. And 
there are a, a group of nations where who are pushing back on the science really hard. They've got key people in power that are doing that. Australia, you would have said America, and that's still the case. Things will change under Biden because the rhetoric will change. It won't be about a moral responsibility of future generations. It'll be about jobs and cheap energy. That will be a really important rhetorical shift there. And you'll start to see that play out in some of those numbers and some of those changes there. So in some senses, Australia is unique and we're unique in so many other ways. We're unique in that we have the most to gain of all countries, I think, and advanced industrial countries from renewable energy. We're also one of the more advanced industrial countries that is most likely to see the effects of climate change and are already, whether it be the Torres Strait disappearing into the sea or wildfires. Most of the time, it's actually very poor nations and poor low-lying nations that have the impact on climate change. But we're a rich nation that can do that can get a lot out of climate action and have an enormous amount to lose. We're also a country, and I think this has got a lot to do with it, where the politics of coal and whether that be the power of the peak bodies in the mining industry or very vocal, vocal people in the mining industry and their connections in politics, that is incredibly important to how this all plays itself out. Whereas in the UK, I talk about this with UK peers all the time, the politics of coal worked its way through that system in the 1980s with the strikes and the collapse of that industry. So you'd see in a place like Britain, where the Murdoch press is still very powerful, where there are still cultural the culture wars, as we understand in politics, is still really important, just doesn't extend to climate change. You've got a country that is got rid of coal, enthusiastic about renewable energy. You've got a prime minister who talks about building back from COVID in a green and sustainable way. And you've got really ambitious targets being set by that government in relation to things like electric vehicles. We have none of that here. So in some ways we are unique, in some ways we're not you don't have 20 or 30% of the community who are in the denier category, but the politics of it and the, the ec economics and the politics of it in Australia and the media landscape is such that we are a bit of an outlier. Your second question, so, so we're similar and dissimilar, right? I suppose the second question that you had in relation to this whole idea of framing climate action as personal responsibility is really nefarious. Now, I don't ever discount the ability of how you scale up individual decisions at the householder level to make an impact, whether that be about recycling or waste or the rest of it. But it's really problematic because the message it sends people is that not only are you responsible for the solution, you're responsible for the reason it's happening. And that's not true. The people who are genuinely responsible for lack of progress on climate change in Australia could be could fit in the room behind me. All right, and some of them are still there. And we need to find a way to show that they are actually the outliers, that there is so much movement now from the business, from philanthropy, from the community, for a change that the people who are holding us back a teeny tiny minority.
I understand why people resent their messaging and sometimes it's lazy messaging that you need to reduce your carbon footprint and climate change relies on you catching a bus into work rather than driving a car. It's ridiculous. Most people are already overstressed in their lives and the idea that they have to factor in climate action constantly in every little decision they make, it's a real problem and no wonder people just put it in a too hard basket. I think what is... What has been really exciting for me in the last, I would say, 12 months, it is 12 months, even though it emotionally feels like dog years, it feels, you know, you know they say one adult year is like seven dog years. That's what the last year of COVID has felt like. When COVID hit, I thought we're not going to see any commitments or action from business or government on climate. And actually, we've seen the opposite. We've seen so much happening in business in the corporate area and we've seen enormous amount happening at the state level and that is going to put pressure on the federal government and I think that is hopefully going to provide a better framework for the idea that look yep take a keeper cup and yeah if you can buy an electric vehicle great but the fundamental responsibility for change and for structural change lies at the top level at the CEO level, at the C-suite level and, and at the government level and particularly the federal government level. I think that's such a, a good message and you also talked earlier about the biggest individual responsibility that you have is how you vote, given all of that. Yeah. And maybe also yeah. where you put your superannuation fund, two big decisions that you actually do have a, a lot of influence over, mm-hmm. the big ones to consider. So your book is how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference. Through your journey, did you see examples of people who had changed their minds about climate change? You talked about different segments in the population, presumably from chain yourself to a tree to this yeah. isn't happening to somewhere in the middle. I have a queasy feeling about it. I don't want to think about it too much because it's just overwhelming. Let's turn on Netflix and distract myself. <laughs> So people in those different categories, what were some of the examples you saw, if you did see, of people moving up or down in that spectrum? Anything to do with climate change, just because it's so complex and so connected to how we feel about things politically, socially, all the rest of it, how we feel about really big things like how we feel about our connection to nature. It's really hard, but I think there's, two things that can happen when we think about climate communication. One is that people who accept the science are concerned, we can activate them. The same thing that happened to me. Like I was somebody who didn't doubt the science, you know, worried about it, but it was very intellectual for me. And and climate change was not something like I wanted the party that I voted for to take it seriously, but it wasn't at the centre of my universe. And so I meet a lot of people who've shifted from concerned to alarmed. Often it's been a kind of almost imperceptible thing that's happening in their head and then suddenly something happens and it's often a personal thing. So they might have watched a bushfire or had their house burnt down or something happened, saw something, something activated them. That's really important because what that does and what that can do, particularly if you've got a diverse group of people coming into the alarmed group, like the not usual suspects, then that's really important. There's evidence both here and in the United States, which is that what's been happening is that you've got more people going from concerned to alarmed, but you're not necessarily converting a lot of those other people who are either antagonistic or disengaged from the issue altogether. 
And it may be that a lot of people just, no matter what happens, just sit in broadly concerned, right? So one of the things I'm always thinking about is, look, if, if you can't get people really worried about the science, can you get people engaged by getting really excited by the solutions or at very least accepting to the solutions? So in Australia, for example, there's a category of people that we would call doubtful. They're not deniers, but they kind of think, oh, this is all probably a natural cycle. Maybe we're contributing to it, but it's all been over-exaggerated. They're really enthusiastic about renewable energy, but a bit cynical about how quickly we can move away from fossil fuels. So I'm always thinking not necessarily about how I can make those people alarmed. I'm thinking about messaging that can make those people not antagonistic, right? How can you get them to not get their back up about the climate messaging and think, oh, that's reasonable. And sometimes it means not talking about climate change at all. So with some of the clients that I'm working with, for example, in the museum and gallery space, in the renewable energy space, they're interested about how you reach the concerned and how you don't activate this group of doubtful, which are kind of 16%, which is not a kind of a less than 10% group of deniers. So I think that's really important to think about that the movement on this is going to be haphazard. It's not as simple as saying we've got to make everybody alarmed. It is about thinking about how do we either, how do we activate people or not activate them on issues. So not amplify the opposition and get people to move on the solution. So it really does require a very tailored approach, understanding who you're talking to and why, what you're talking to them about, and what you want to get them to do. Rather than everybody's concerned about climate, how can we get them to vote every time as if climate is their number one issue? The other thing I'm really worried about ongoing, and it's not something I'm working on, but it's something I do worry about, is how do we educate and support the people who are alarmed to speak better to the rest of the community as we become more anxious? And it does happen. I got a presentation a couple of weeks ago, confidential presentation on just where the science is going. This year, we're going to get some more reports about what the science is telling us. And it's pretty easy to freak out. <laughs> it, is, it is really easy to just go, <gasps> just the enormity of what is already in the system, the CO2 that's already in there. So the massive challenge that we have for both drawdown and emissions reduction. So taking the CO2 out that already exists and making sure more doesn't come in. So in that moment, as somebody is alarmed, you do want to run. There's a part of you that wants to run through the streets and shake people. people. You know, that kind of cliche about you've got that sandwich board on the corner going, the end of the world is nigh. So a big part of what I also want to understand is that the alarmed in Australia is now one in four Australians. One in four Australians fit into that alarm category, perhaps a bit more. We've got another category called the alert. So big section of the community is freaking out. How do we make sure that we don't have a new category called totally freaked out and we think it's all over, right? How do we make sure that we don't have a substantial enough doomer group in the community to be able to derail the journey that everybody else is on? I wish it was as simple as some of the work that I did in my Ipsos days where you go, okay, this person drinks this soft drink. How do we make them drink this other one? 
that is child's play compared to what it means to try and shift different parts of the community in the time we have allocated on this question. One of the things you touched on but you talk more about in your book is that there's not been enough of a counter-narrative put forward about not just the why we should be freaking out category. So as you said, that, that message is out there and that message is mm. fatiguing for people. It, yeah, like, it is. Kind of fight or flight kind of thing. And yeah, yeah. I can relate to that. Big stack of books and a heavy yeah. to dive into them because I think I'm going to get so sad when I do. But the counter narrative is not there. And I think one of the really yeah. interesting things that maybe happened for people in lockdown was yeah. when you walked out and you could suddenly see the air getting clearer. This sense that actually nature's pretty good at healing itself if we give it an opportunity to do that. I was reading a UK description of really green building and it was a description from the people who lived in those buildings about how fantastic it was to live in those buildings that were just really thoughtfully designed and not only were their energy costs low but it was just a really great quality of life. They were warm all the time, they had light, it was a fantastic community and just the sense that actually there is a very positive alternative vision if we are courageous and tap into the innovation that we know that humans have to create systems that are more holistic like we see in nature. So you talk about that and about we've kind of missed a trick or the scientists have certainly missed a trick and probably you also talk about the fact that it's that's not really their bag. They're not no. nothing folk. They're very careful about not misleading you. I don't blame scientists for not being great communicators because they didn't become scientists to go on Q&A. They came, you know, and argue with Barnaby Joyce and thank God. They went because they like spending time in the lab and with data and talking about data. So, look, I think one of the things that, and I hesitate to say mistake the environment movement has made because it's it, what they're trying to do is extremely difficult and their opposition is huge. Right? But one of the things that has happened for so long is this idea that action on climate change means we'll have less. Mm-hmm. So somebody's yeah. going to take away your ute and you're not going to be able to eat a hamburger and you're going to be shivering in cages wearing a burlap sack and there's going to be no joy or fun or whatever. There's going to be less jobs, right? There's going to be less everything. And what was really clear, and in, in some ways it's not been the most popular chapter in the book, but it's the one that was so critically important for me is I write a chapter on the idea of loss. Humans are loss averse. We don't want to lose things. And if we're offered something short term, we grab it because the idea of long term gain is too scary, right? They, these are embedded in us uh, for thousands of years of how we operate as human beings. So if you make climate change as being somehow losing all of these things, you have to give up all this stuff, particularly as an individual, and particularly if you already have resentment that the people asking you to give it up have a lot of stuff already. It's really hard for the language of sacrifice and the language of change and the language of loss to come flowing out of a politician's or a CEO's mouth. No one's going to listen to it if you're somebody who's struggling in life already. So we talked about how do we talk about what we have to gain by change rather than what we have to lose by action, right? That is the real, that is the problem. And that is what we're trying to create now. The difficulty, of course, is a lot has already been lost. 
And we also need to not lie to people and say that we can continue to consume at the crazy levels that we've consumed. I just put some solar panels on our house and we can continue to behave the way we are. And instinctively, I think people know that. But that's a much, much, you know, longer trajectory that we're on about this idea about what, what affluence looks like and what inequality looks like. But you're absolutely right. And this is why I think the messages that work with people who aren't already 100% on board with climate action are messages that talk about Australian ingenuity, Australian capacity for uh, resilience, change, adaptation, innovation, and how we've got an opportunity to harness all of those, also because we just happen to be really close to Asia and have lots and lots of sun and land and clever people in universities, although it requires governments to fund universities to continue to allow clever people to do that work, but there's just this kind of whole of community like, okay, this change is already happening, this transition is happening, how can we get in on it? And I often say to people, a really big thing that we have to try and harness to get people to understand, get excited about the climate solutions that are available to us and the transition we have to make, is this idea of FOMO, fear of missing out. If we don't get on, if we don't, if we don't capitalise on the moment that we've got and jump on it because that window is not going to be open forever, there's the urgency. And because there's so much that we can protect and so much that we can gain in the future if we do that. So that's a much more, it, 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 that's a much more positive vision. That being said, like I said, we do need to, one of the kind of, I think, incorrect assumptions that I had coming into this work and one of the things that everybody would say, oh, you know what, in order to move people, you've got to be positive. You've got, it's all got to be positive. And actually, it, that's a mistake too. People don't change unless they think something's at stake, unless they think that what's happening now isn't going to work in the future and that there, there's a potential for loss or more loss. It's the loss-gain equation that you present to people and it will look different with different people. Different people will be driven and motivated by different things. That's the key. It's not, oh, it's all going to be fine if we do this. Because there does need to be some, some behaviour change supported by government policy and there has to be a sense that something's at stake. So it, I wish it was a very simple equation of a bit of fear, a whole lot of positive energy and sugar equals, you know, the perfect outcome. But like I said, that tailored approach, really understanding who your audience is and what you want them to do is really critically important. I mean, it intuitively makes sense. And actually, interestingly, Australia has a really great track record on these kinds of things. If you think about public behavioural change, yeah. stuff, as well as policy, yeah. you know, we're a world leader in smoking cessation. Yeah. People are, are used to those sort of campaigns that mix yeah. fear, but also the thing yeah. on the other side. A, yeah, absolutely. And now COVID, the GFC, all the rest of it. Absolutely. You're right. Australia has so much going for it that could mean there's an opportunity to be a real world leader yeah. in, in that kind of mass mobilisation to change. I'm interested from your point of view, who would you love to read your book? I wrote the book for two different audiences, I think. 
And both of those audiences have been reached, but the harder audience to reach, not so much. So I did want to write it for people who have perhaps been worried about climate change for a long time, doing things about it, but at that point where they needed something a little bit new, access to some new ideas to give them a little bit of a, you know, booster shot of optimism. And I wanted to write a book that didn't have a lot of science and was really positive and easy to read because most of the time climate books are not easy to read. And so what has been really fantastic is the biggest feedback I've got are from people who've been in climate activism or worried about climate change for a long time and bought the book because they always buy climate books and they sit at the side (laughs) of their bed. And then they were like, oh my God, it was so easy to read. It was so helpful. so that, that kind of people who are already engaged in the issue and it gave them something new, something different. So that's been good. I did want it to be picked up by somebody who perhaps never picked up a lot of climate, a climate book before and was thinking, how do I talk about this? How do I at least stop my family fighting about it at Christmas or whatever? Somebody who didn't need to read The Uninhabitable Earth or whatever new thing was going to be coming out from the kind of Naomi clients of the world, obviously I have lots of um, respect for them, just didn't want that approach to it. Something that really made them understand their emotional and psychological response to climate change, that around them and gave them a little bit more understanding, empathy and some tools for conversation. And some of those people have come out of the woodwork too. So I wrote the book for those two audiences. And it was also a book where I really wanted to, most of my books have been very focused on Australia and I wanted to make it a genuinely international book with what people are doing in other countries and research from all around the world. So the interest that I've gotten from places like New Zealand, Finland, Canada, America, it's about to come out in the UK this year has been terrific as well. Yeah, I can echo that. It's a very accessible book. You cover a lot of material, rich material, but it's very digestible. It is a good book for somebody. And I think there are a lot of people in that category. A lot of people at the Christmas table have the conversation and it it becomes a real flashpoint or confrontation. And you do talk about how to meet people where they're at, Mm. tap into listening and empathy and all those things. You structure your book around different emotional states, fear, loss. You talk about all of those things and you finish with a chapter on love. And to know from your perspective, what's love got to do with it? (laughs) I learned so much coming into this. The two big insights that I had was that there's almost no, except for shame, I'd I'd have to be absolutely convinced that shame is a really terrific emotion to get people to, because I think shame has always had a very specific impact on how people feel. But what I realised is that there is no such thing as a negative and positive emotion when it comes to communication. It's about whether it's effective with the audience that you have and to get them to do what they want to do. And the research shows that. Sometimes fear is important. Sometimes guilt is important if it sparks a sense of responsibility. So I realised that there were pluses and minuses to all of the emotions, including things like hope. I thought the book would end on hope. It didn't. Because one of the problems about hope, a hope that isn't grounded in action or responsibility, is you just hope something is going to work out. Because it always has, right? People go, oh, well, they said that the Asian flu is going to be terrible we look at the fact that things worked out in the past as an indicator that they're going to work out in the future. So hope can be a different form of denial. 
And you can see it happen. And particularly people who place too much hope in technology solving the problem. Now, technology can do enormous things, but unless human beings employ it properly and unless we change some of our behaviour in concert with technology, Elon Musk is not going to get us out of this mess. So there was that. I ended with love because I realised that so much of the psychological studies and so much of the effective activism didn't start with the science. It started with what mattered to people. What did they care about? What did they love? What did they fear that they were going to lose? What did they want to protect? And what were they motivated to do something about? And almost all people and communities love something. I'll give you a really simple example of how important starting with love matters. I was presenting last year to a whole heap of politicians and there was a politician in the group. I could spot him. As soon as he walked in, he got, went straight to the front. I knew what electorate he represented. It just happened to be a big coal region. Sat right in the front. Perfectly lovely guy, but really wanted to get into it with me. And when I presented my stuff for that book, and he threw his hand up and he said to me, okay, so what if I invited you down to the RSL and my electorate and invited all these people who their whole family and lives has been based on coal mining, what would you say to them about the science to convince them? And I said, I would not start the conversation with climate change. I wouldn't even presume to lecture them as a non-scientist about climate change or about the science. I would start with a conversation about what kind of community do they want to live in? What matters to them? What do they want for the future, for themselves, from their kids, for their neighbours? That would be the conversation. In fact, probably climate change wouldn't be mentioned at all. You'd have a series of conversations with that community to come to some kind of consensus about what they want that area to look like. And then, and only then, would you work out the extent to which renewable energy and action on climate change could realise that vision of a community they want to live in. So love is the start. Science isn't the start of the conversation. Telling people what they should want is not the start of the conversation. What matters to them? And it was one of these things where he was completely disarmed. I didn't really know what to say. Like, how could you argue with that? And, that, and the problem is that's a longer conversation than standing in front of somebody and saying, look, if we don't act and keep emissions below blood, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is going to happen. People who, if you're not turned on by that script by now, you're not going to be turned on by it, <laughs> by me. And I've seen examples of that, the ability of that conversation to shift people, continuously shift people. And I've seen it in the, work, in the promotion of the book, people ringing up in talkback or reaching out to me and saying, this is how, this was the penny dropping moment for me not necessarily the science, but how it would intersect with the things that mattered to me. And yeah, and so some of the work that I'm loving doing the most at the moment is with a whole lot of groups whose action around climate change is centred on a sport that they love. So tennis players, cricketers, outdoor runners, surfers, I'm doing a bit of work with surfers for climate. And they get it. They want to continue to play the sport they love. They want their kids to. It's a real sense of heritage and what they do going back 
generations and they want that to continue to go forward. So I like seeing the extent to which you can reach people and reach more audiences through the thing they love, not the thing that they fear or the science that is in many ways either boring or distancing from them, turns them off. I think that is a spectacular way to close out <laughs> and actually a really clear path. What is it that you love? What is it that you want to protect? And hope without action isn't hope. Yeah. One other closing thought in the end of the book, you encourage people to talk to each other and to start a conversation. What is one thing that somebody who's listening to this today can do today? Wow. It's really <laughs> starting that conversation is a really hard thing. I think one of the things I always say and one of the things that the climate movement is getting a lot better at is how you work out what your personal climate story is because it's pretty hard. It's one thing to say to somebody, oh, look at all these bushfires, it's climate change, it's all ScoMo's problem and you, you make it about something too remote or people feel like, oh, they've, I've got to tell them that I'm worried or whatever. And I think a big part of how I start this conversation is I love my kids I tell them to brush their teeth and I really worry about what's going to happen in the future. And a big part of it is I'm just worrying like all the problems that they're going to inherit. And I worry about these hot summers where we can't do the things that we want to do. And so that's why I got really interested in the, the potential of renewable energy to create a kind of a livable world for them and have that kind of personal story and work out what that is. But if you're not telling a personal story, you're often just asking people what they think and just really suspend any attempt to lecture them about it or give them a whole lot more information. And this is why this is not one conversation. It's a series of conversations. And it may be that what you're doing is just getting them to articulate something that they wouldn't normally have ever articulated out loud. And then suddenly a couple of days later, they think about this or they have another conversation because that's the reality is that it's like that, it's, it, and it can happen. I don't know if it happened to you. You either hear of a book or you hear of a person that you've never heard before and you hear about, so I've never heard of that before. And then suddenly you're noticing them everywhere and where you wouldn't normally have noticed them. Absolutely. And that's what can happen with climate change. Suddenly somebody in the schoolyard has a conversation with that. And then two days later, you hear that Ziggy, whatever his name is, Twiggy Forrest does a Boyer lecture where he talks about the power of green hydrogen. You're like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing or whatever that might be. Or, you know, you go to your local cricket club and they're like, we've got a motion here about acting on climate change because basically test cricket in summer might be a thing of the past in five years if we keep having the summers that we have. And suddenly there are all of these deliberate or accidental conversations that make you think this is a thing and not only is this a thing this is a thing that connects with my life and a thing that is relevant to me because climate change has is so big so scary and so complex it's always really struggled to be relevant to people to be immediate relevant and unless something is an urgent relevant and meaningful how can we ask people to act on it when there are so many other urgent relevant and meaningful things that they have to do yeah, very powerful. Thank you so much, not just uh, for your time this morning, but for all the work that you put into putting together a really clear, articulate perspective on how to talk to people about climate change in a way that will make a difference. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.